We are in Romans chapter 8, and looking at verses 14 through 17. Let's just read the text first, and then we'll, we'll take a look at this. The Apostle Paul writes these words, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This morning, inside of your bulletins, there's an outline. It says this, we're, you know, this is part two, so we're going to continue to consider two ways in which the Holy Spirit ministers to us as the spirit of adoption, as Paul refers to him there, so that we might rejoice even more in our great salvation. And uh, the first way in which the Holy Spirit ministers to us is the Spirit is instrumental in making us God's children. And then the second way is the Spirit simply makes us aware that we are God's children. So as I said, this is a two-part message. I began it two weeks ago. I was out last week. And as I said last time, um, this text in Romans introduces us to this truly wonderful and incredible word concerning our salvation in Christ, and it's the word adoption, adoption. And to be more specific, it's adoption as sons, adoption as sons. That's what the text says, and that's a good translation. I spent a little time a couple of weeks ago explaining to you that the Greek word that Paul uses there, it's one Greek word translated adoption as sons. Uh, that's, a, that's a good translation because it was a legal term. It was a legal term that signified being granted the full rights and privileges of sonship. The full rights and privileges of sonship in a family to which one did not belong by nature. Okay? Adoption as sons. So that's the word Paul uses there when he refers to the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God. He is the Spirit of adoption of sons. See, in Paul's day, and I'm just this is by way of reminder, under Roman law, it was a recognized practice for an adult who wanted an heir, someone to, to carry on the family name, and that would be carried on through the son. They could legally adopt a male to be their son. And this happened... Uh, usually for families that were unable to uh, give birth to a son or have a son. And then under the law, Roman law, that adopted son would be placed in the same position and have the same rights as if he were a biological son. Okay, And those rights included that son now becoming an heir to the father's estate. He had rights to the father's inheritance. It would be passed on to him. So that is all very significant when we consider uh, the historical context of that word as we think about how it applies to us in our adoption with God. Now, last time we looked at this text, I quoted several times from a book titled Knowing God. Knowing God, great book. I think it was put out in 1973, but it's, so it's been around for a long time, well-known, 
Knowing God by J.I. Packer. There, he has a chapter in that book called Sons of God. And in that chapter, he addresses this issue of uh, being adopted into the family of God. And this time, I'm going to read you a lengthy quote. Fairly lengthy, but it's, it was pretty impactful to me, and I hope it'll be uh, as well to you and help you greater appreciate this concept of adoption how awesome of a word this is as it relates to our salvation in Jesus Christ, okay? So just, I'll make a few comments as we go, follow along as I read. G.I. Packer writes in that book, Adoption, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. And then he makes this statement, higher even than justification. This may cause raising of eyebrows, for justification is the gift of God on which sense Luther evangelicals have have laid the greatest stress. Okay, stop right there just for a second. He's just saying, listen, Luther, part of the, the Reformation, you know, he realized, listen, he's coming out of Catholicism and he realizes we are justified by faith alone, through Christ alone, right? It's all by God's grace. It's a free gift. We don't earn or merit a right standing with God. He gives it to us through Jesus Christ who has earned it for us. That's what he means. So every Luther evangelical, every person who follows in that same train of thought as we do here, would look to justification, this, 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 that word and that idea and that concept as the, the highest blessing that a Christian can know. And so that's why he's saying, wow, you know, to make a statement like this, that adoption's even higher, well, wait a minute, what are you saying? So he goes on. And we are accustomed to say, almost without thinking, that free justification is God's supreme blessing to us sinners. Okay? That's true, beloved, it is. But nonetheless... He says, careful thought will show the truth of the statement just made, the statement being that adoption is the highest privilege. Then he goes on. That justification, and then he defines it, by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past, of all of our sins, right? Totally forgiven, together with his acceptance for the future. So we are declared right with God now, or in the past, now, and in the future. It's all taken care of through Jesus Christ. Justification. That is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel. It's not a question. Certainly, that's, we're not questioning that that is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's wrath. Or judgment, I'm sorry, God's judgment, okay? We all, by nature, stand under God's judgment. Why? Because, listen, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, what does Paul say? Speaking to Christians, he says, we were children of wrath just like the rest of mankind, right? We were, that's what we were. We were under God's wrath, worthy of God's wrath, but no longer through Christ. So he goes on to say, his law condemns us. Guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and in our lucid or most clear moments, afraid. I mean, if we really understood the judgment of God and how much we deserve it in His wrath, then every person should be terrified. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our Maker. 
I mean, any person in that position who is not saved, who does not have justification through Christ, they should be terrified. So he goes on to say, so we need the forgiveness of our sins. That's our primary basic need, beloved. An assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in this world. I don't know about you. I don't know what you think your greatest need is, but it's this right here, justification, to be justified before God. It is that, to be forgiven of your sins, to be cleansed of all your unrighteousness. That is our greatest and primary need. And this, the gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. And then he goes on to to show that. The first gospel sermons to be preached, those recorded in Acts, leads up to the promise of forgiveness of sins to all who repent and receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Then in Romans, Paul's fullest exposition of his gospel, his fullest explanation, justification through the cross of Christ, is expounded first and made basic to everything else. It begins with justification, beloved. We start there. That's where our relationship with God must start. Regularly, Paul speaks of righteousness, remission of sins, and justification as the first and immediate consequence for us of Jesus' death. And as justification is the primary blessing, so it is the fundamental blessing. In other words, it's, it's the foundation for all of our other blessings in the sense that everything else in our salvation assumes it and rests on it, adoption included, adoption included. But this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Watch. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Justification is a forensic idea. So that, what he means by that is it's a, it's a, it's a term that's used in the, in the course of law or a court. It's a legal type of term. He goes on to say, conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. When you think of justification, that's how you should be thinking. In justification, God declares of believers that they are not and never will be liable to the death that their sins deserve because Jesus Christ, their substitute and sacrifice, tasted death in their place on the cross. This, and that's a hallelujah moment, beloved, this free gift of acquittal and peace won for us at the cost of Calvary, Christ's death, is wonderful enough in all conscience But justification does not of itself, listen, imply any intimate or deep relationship with God, the judge. In idea, at any rate, you could have the reality of justification without any close fellowship with God resulting. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge, oh, that is a great thing. That is a great thing, beloved. 
but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. Hmm? I, hope that, I hope that sits with you for a while. With that, I want to pick up where I left off last week, which was the second point of the outline. But first, just a few words uh, concerning the first point. The Spirit is inter- instrumental in making us God's children. In verse 14, there in chapter 8, Paul says that all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. All who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. And based on the immediate context, let's just look back at your Bibles for a second. I'll just show you. It's good that we always read things in context. So here's verse 13. I'm just going to back up for a second. It says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So when we read it in context, then we we can understand that when Paul says all who are led by the Spirit, he's talking about what he just said in verse 13. So it's all those who are to one degree or another putting to death the sinful deeds of the body by the power of the indwelling spirit. Because sometimes people will look to this passage and they will talk a lot about what it means to be led by the spirit, but it's not necessarily what Paul's talking about because in context, clearly, he's simply making a reference to what he just said. It's, it's just another way of describing that very thing. Those who are led by the spirit, those who are guided by the spirit in this sense, putting to death the deeds of the body, being sanctified, those, those are those who are the sons of God. But why is it now, why is it that all those who are led by the Spirit of God, why is it that Paul says they are sons of God? What's the connection there? Well, Paul answers that in verse 15. He answers that. It is because the same Spirit who lives in every believer and prompts, guides, and empowers them to put to death the sinful deeds of the body, or, to say it another way, help them become more and more free from sin and like Christ in their lives, that Spirit, according to verse 15, is the Spirit of adoption as sons. It is this Spirit, listen, it is this Spirit, the one Paul is talking about, the one who is leading us as Christians towards holiness the one that every Christian has residing inside of them is that spirit who has brought the Christian into this highly privileged relationship as adopted sons of God. Or you could say that the spirit of adoption is the agent by whom the believer's sonship is bestowed or granted. Or you might say it this way, the spirit is the one who, based on the saving work of Christ, has placed us into the family of God by the miracle of regeneration. Those are all ways to get at that same thought. So the Spirit is instrumental in making us God's children. Now look back at verse 15 again. Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, what does it mean when Paul says that you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear? What does that mean? 
Well, I have to tell you that that, that statement is debated. There's uh, some different understanding of, or ways to understand that. Bible scholars don't all agree, but I'm going to tell you what I think. I believe Paul is simply using this phrase by way of contrast. It's by way of contrast to emphasize the, the nature and true blessing of the Spirit that the Christian has received. Okay, it's just a, he's making a statement that really highlights how awesome it is to receive, that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons. And I'll, I'll just show you this. The NIV translates the first part of verse 15, so maybe this will be a little bit helpful to you. It translates it this way. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. Okay, so in other words, the spirit... In contrast, the spirit that believers have received does not bring about that anxiety and fear of God's judgment that previously held them in bondage before they came to Christ. But instead, in stark contrast to that, the Holy Spirit that you and I have received as Christians, the spirit of adoption as sons, that spirit produces within the heart of a believer a sense of peace and security before God as his beloved child. And by the enabling of the Holy Spirit that indwells the Christian, the Christian now cries out, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. And that brings me to the second point in the outline. The Spirit makes us aware that we are God's children. The Spirit makes us aware that we are God's children. So listen, the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of adoption, not only bestows adoption on us, He also makes us aware of this new relationship, that we who are saved are now indeed God's beloved children. Paul says in verse 15 that it is by the Spirit that we have received that we cry, what? Abba, Father. Now, here's a question. Why didn't he just say Father? Why this additional word, Abba? I'm glad you guys asked that question. Listen, Abba is an Aramaic word. It's an Aramaic word which came, so it's just left as it is, it came to be used among the Jews as the familiar term by which children addressed their father. Uh, it was an expression of, it's understood to be an expression of intimacy or closeness. Intimacy or closeness. Some have suggested that it is similar uh, to our children saying, Daddy or Papa. Daddy or Papa, that kind of term. It's a term of intimacy, trust, reliance. And here's the really interesting thing. According to Mark chapter 14, verse 36, there in that gospel is recorded Jesus addressing his Father in the same exact way using that term, Abba, Abba, Father. Expression of intimacy, closeness. So one writer says this. In ascribing to Christians and dwelt by the Spirit, the use of this same term, 
in addressing God, the same term that Jesus used, Paul shows that Christians have a relationship to God that is like, like, though of course not exactly like, like Christ's own relationship to the Father. In adopting us, God has taken no half measures. We have been made full members of the family and partakers of all the privileges belonging to members of the family. That's, that's important. I think these terms are important. I think these, these, these words here, you need to stop and look at them and ask why they're there. They're important. They're significant. This is the kind of relationship we have through Christ and His Spirit with God. A relationship very similar to the one that Christ has with the Father. One that's intimate and close where we can call God Abba, Father. But listen, how does receiving the spirit of adoption as sons, how does that enable us to cry out Abba, Father? Because that's what he says, it's by the spirit that we cry out Abba, Father, or cry Abba, Father. Well, the answer to that question is verse 16. Look back at the text. Paul goes on to say, the spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of adoption as sons, all terms used to describe the Spirit. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So it is the witness then, or the testimony of the Spirit Himself concerning our adoption as sons that affects the innermost part of our beings, our spirit. Enabling us as Christians to confidently come to God as his true child and address him from the very depths of our soul as Abba Father. As Abba Father. Commenting on these verses, one writer just says, the force of Paul's words here is that the Holy Spirit not only joins us to the family of God, that's amazing, placing us into the body of Christ and and into the family of God. He not only does that, but he continually assures us and reminds us of this relationship. Beloved, this manner in which the spirit of adoption ministers to us, continually affirming to us our privileged status as God's children, is similar to the ministry he is said to have, and we already went over this some time ago, in Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Maybe you'll remember this. That's where Paul writes that God's love, God's love has been poured into our hearts. Through who? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Or that is to say that the indwelling Holy Spirit is the one who makes the Christian eternally, internally aware of God's love for them. So in in each case, we have an example of the Spirit's ministry then, of inward assurance, of inward assurance. On one hand, he fills the Christian up with the assurance of God's unending love for them, and on the other hand, he convinces or assures them of the reality that they are now his beloved, adopted children. Now, I don't, I don't know. One, I, I, let me just make a few comments here. We, are, we tend to be people of extremes, and we can go to one side to the other, and that's never usually good. So 
Some people will go to this side over here and they'll say, listen, I, I know I'm a Christian because I, I know, I just know. I, I have this uh, internal testimony that I am a child of God and I know that he loves me. I mean, I can't explain it to you exactly, but I know, okay? All right, that's good. And a Christian should have that kind of verification in their life. At the same time, there's some objective evidence over here. I, I know I'm, I'm a Christian because I've done what the Bible has said. I've given my life to Jesus Christ. I've placed my faith in him. The Bible says whoever confesses him shall be saved, right? Right? So I've confessed him as Lord. I've put my trust in him. So I'm trusting in the word of God, this objective thing right here. I'm trusting in what it says. That's how I know I'm a child of God. Beyond that, I know I'm a child of God because I see changes in my life through, hey, the spirit of God at work in my life. He's doing exactly what the Bible says he would do. He's changing me. He's transforming me. All of a sudden, I don't feel the same way I used to feel about my sin. I'm starting to hate it. Oh, I still struggle with it, but I, I don't want to live in that life anymore. And so the spirit is helping me walk out of that life and into the life of Jesus Christ, right? So we have this over here. Listen, we should have both. I wouldn't, if all you had was that feeling and you didn't have any of this, you weren't basing it on the testimony of God's word or the spirit of God at work in your life, there's no objective evidence, then I would wonder about what you were really feeling over here. You see? Maybe those, maybe those feelings aren't real. But at the same time, if you're over here, and you're saying, hey, I'm trusting in the objective word of God. It says I'm saved. But at no time in your life do you ever really feel the assurance of your salvation, the spirit of You don't have the love of God being poured out in your heart. You don't really know it. You don't feel it. You can't cry out, Abba, Father. If that's not going on, there's something wrong. I would be concerned about that because the spirit of God ministers to us. He wants us to know truly know objectively and subjectively that we are the fathers and that we have been saved. And it's important, beloved. It's important. It's important to have, especially in times where we're struggling or wrestling or we're down, or maybe our fight with sin didn't go so well that week. That's the time where I need the Spirit of God to remind me of God's love for me and that I am His adopted child. I need that assurance. And the Spirit of God, He's so gracious. It's not like it's on all the time. I, if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for some time, and this has been the testimony of Christians throughout the ages, you know what I'm talking about. It is this assurance that only the Spirit of God can bring, allowing me to cry out to Him, Abba, Father. No longer in fear of Him as judge, but now as my, my dad, my holy Father, always in reverence, but in a relationship that's intimate and close. Not only have I been justified and declared right before this mighty judge, but I have been moved right alongside of Him, and I now sit at His feet. That's incredible. And by the way, watch this. Both of these realities, the fact that the Spirit of God pours out God's love into our hearts as Christians, not only that, He testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, allowing us to cry out, Abba, Father. Both of these realities help me understand what we get to here in verse 17. 
And it brings me to the last part of verse 17 now. Now watch, where after Paul says this, that if we are God's children, then we are his heirs, hallelujah, right? Heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, that's right, adopted as sons, legally entitled to our Father's inheritance now. Fellow heirs of Christ, brought into the family, the Son of God, we are sons. What an incredible truth. We talked about that all last time, but then Paul says this, watch. Romans 8, 17, watch what he says here. Provided, provided we suffer with him. The hymn is Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Now, now listen, watch. I'm going to show you something. In the verses that follow, Paul elaborates more. And we're going to look at this in the weeks to come. He elaborates more on the, on the sufferings of this present time that Christians experience and the future glory that awaits us as children of God. And, and we'll get to that. But maybe you're wondering why Paul would bring up suffering at the end of a discussion that is primarily focused on our status, an incredible one, as children of God. I mean, after speaking about the incredible blessing of being God's children and therefore being heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, the subject of suffering almost seems to kind of come out of nowhere. Like, boom, you know, like, what? Where'd that come from, Paul? I mean, it was going well, man. Talking about the spirit of adoption of sons. We cried, Abba, Father, we received the spirit. This is awesome. Yeah, provided that. Uh, it doesn't come out of nowhere. Let me suggest to you that Paul brings up suffering at this point in order to affirm to his readers that while the great privilege of being a child of God certainly has its blessings and, most importantly, its eternal rewards, it does not, it does not exclude them from suffering or persecution in this life, but rather it will necessarily, necessarily include it to some degree. Did you hear what I just said? It will include it necessarily, if you are a child of God, suffering for Christ to some degree. Listen, we know this already. John 15, this is what Jesus says, verses 18 through 20. Speaking to his disciples, his followers, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, Beloved, Christians aren't of the world. Sometimes they play the fool and they look like they're of the world and then they need to be slapped by the Spirit and those in the church who are loving them and encouraging them back into the path of righteousness. Uh, but as a way of life, those who are Christians, they're not of the world. They don't walk according to the ways of the world. So it says if you, if you were of the world, which means you aren't, if you were of the world... The world would love you as its own, right? We talked about this before. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You're mine. They hate you on, on account of me. 
You're not of them anymore. I've called you out. You're the called out ones. And I've called you to be holy, right? Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Hey, that's a, that's, that's a guarantee. Did they persecute Christ? Right. Then they'll persecute those who follow Christ. And they have been for 2,000 years. This is confusing to us because we live in America where, at least for the time being, our persecution is, uh, let me just say, relatively speaking, minimal compared to the persecution that goes on right now all over the world for those who follow Jesus Christ, including imprisonment, beatings, death, you name it, the worst of the worst. We still suffer, beloved. But uh, And who knows? Maybe more suffering's coming. I don't know when or any of that. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to freak you out. But I do know we still suffer. And I was even talking to a brother about this. We, we suffer. Sometimes we don't even know we're suffering. Let me give you an example of how we might be persecuted for the sake of following Christ. You might get uh, passed over for job promotions and never know it. So you may not even know. Um, but I'll tell you one way you want to find out, just start talking about Jesus at your workplace. <laughs> uh, typically, I mean, if I do it at my workplace, it usually goes pretty well. Uh, but, so I don't experience this. But when I was in the secular workforce, I certainly did experience this. Uh, you know, they're not going to probably throw stones at you or, or knife you or anything like that, but certainly they may, they may not speak well of you. Uh, they might slander you. They may make fun of you. This is the kind of suffering we may experience, certainly. Uh, it can be more than that. I know many, not many, but I know Christians who have given their life to, people have given their life to Christ, their families have disowned them. And that's suffering. Here in America, that still goes on. They don't want anything to do with them. It happens to a lot of Catholics. You know, you know, they, they wake up and realize the, the wonders of grace and that we are saved by nothing we do, but all because of what Christ has done. And they, they walk away from Catholicism with all of its stuff into the freedom that is Jesus Christ. And uh, their family feels like they betrayed him, so they suffer. So we do suffer in, in ways, and, and we'll suffer more to the degree that we're living our lives out for the sake of Jesus Christ, okay? It's, not, it's a part of it. Listen to what Apostle Peter says, 1 Peter. He says this to the church, chapter 4. He says, dear friends. Now, this is, again, this is a time of intense suffering. This is like serious persecution, locked up in jail, your things taken away, your family divided, maybe death. Uh, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Now, now listen, listen, listen. Okay, so Paul, what you're telling me is, uh, I've received the spirit of adoption as sons, thereby I've been, I've been brought into the family of God. God the Father, that's my father. I'm his child. God 
well then what's up with the suffering? That doesn't seem... I mean, that doesn't normally, okay? If I take you in, if you become my child, right? One of the father's deals is, in our, in our understanding, he protects that child. He, he keeps that child from harm. Isn't that one of the responsibilities of dads? Hello? Did we forget? Good. I see a few nodding heads. Jeez, where are we? What culture are we in? Yeah, dads, are the, they're the protector of the family. At least they're supposed to be, okay? So well, that's one of the things they do. They care for their children. They watch out for their children, right? So you can see how it might be a little confusing now. Wait a minute, I'm part of the family of God. I have this great inheritance coming, so on and so forth. What is up with the suffering? So Paul is just making it very clear. Listen, guys, that's part of it. His son suffered. His only begotten son, the beloved son of God, suffered. He was persecuted. And as his followers, you will suffer too. But don't think for a moment it's because you're not his child. It is because you are his child. And so the Spirit of God continues to testify to our spirit that we are indeed children of God. And we cry out in our most desperate times, Abba, Father. Yeah. So beloved suffering, far from calling from calling our sonship into question, far from that, it actually affirms it. And, and it calls us, it, it calls us to keep our minds and our hearts focused on the glory that is to come to those who are the children of God and thereby heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Remember, an inheritance is something that comes when? In the future. Well, yeah, in the future, right? So all of this, he's going to get to this as we move through Romans chapter 8. Right now, guys, they're suffering. But there's a glory coming because you are the children of God. Don't ever forget that. And let that keep you going as you live your life out for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for... Your word, thank you for Romans. It's an incredible, incredible book. Father, I thank you for your spirit. What a gift. What a gracious gift. Wow. There are so many things attributed to the spirit of God that he has nothing to do with. If only we would focus in on the things and know the things that he does do. They are amazing. They are wonderful and inspiring. Father, we've learned so much about the Spirit of God. It's just beautiful. And here in this text, he's called the Spirit of adoption as sons. What a, what a beautiful term for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that you've given to us, Father, has, has brought us into your family in the most intimate and possible way. That very same Spirit that now indwells us and helps us now be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, helps us to battle our sin, empowers us to fight it, and and prompts us to move away from it, to to hate it, to, to be disgusted by it, and move towards a life of righteousness. That very same Spirit not only does that, not only continues to sanctify us and work through us in that way, but he also confirms to us again and again your great, unending, and eternal love for us. 
poured out in our hearts. And not only that, but he testifies to our spirit that we are indeed children, children of God, your children, Father, because of our salvation through Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this great gift of your indwelling Holy Spirit. Help us now to to continue to walk by the Spirit, to live according to the Spirit, to be guided and, and to rely upon the Spirit, to live out our lives. And Father, even in the process of doing that, when we face persecution, and we will, to one degree or another, we will. If we are true followers of Christ, we will. Help us to remember that that spirit of adoption of sons has placed us in a position where we are now heirs. Heirs of God and and fellow heirs with Christ. And may that glory that is to be revealed to us help us to stay the course, Father, in this life that at times can be incredibly, incredibly challenging and difficult, especially for the one who is following Jesus Christ. Father, for those who are here and they don't know you as Father, they can't, they can't sincerely or genuinely call you Father. Not really, because they're not your children. They haven't been adopted into the family. They're still children of wrath. For them, Father, I, I plead with you that you would work mightily even now, even now at this moment, in their hearts, in their minds through your word and the power of your spirit to convict them that they might see clearly, more clearly than they've ever seen before, that they are outside of the family of God, but that they can be in that family through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, faith in the salvation that he alone provides through his work, sacrificial work, substitutionary death on the cross for sins. Father, help them to see that now clearly, that they might repent of their sinful life and give themselves fully and without reserve to Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. And if they do that, Father, we know what will happen. The Spirit of God, your Spirit, will indwell them, possess them, And they will immediately be placed into the family of God and become heirs. Lord, may that happen even at this moment, even today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.